Amen. Well, it is awesome, as we have said several times already, to have you guys here today. And uh, for those of you who are out there watching, we hope that you sign up and, and come on in. I was talking with a friend of mine this past week, and she was just saying that she could literally, like through her television screen, feel the change in the energy, particularly in regard to the singing and to the worship. She's like, Tom, I could just, I could feel the spirit was there, and it, like it translated even through technology, which is an awesome thought. And I really hope that's exactly what you experience if the only way that you can come is through technology at the moment. Uh, I I want to add to Matt's Happy Father's Day, one of my own, so Happy Father's Day to all of you who are dads here and who are dads out there. Uh, What a challenging season of time to be a parent. (laughs) It has been interesting. I mean, it's like ripe with opportunity, as Matt said, more time with our kids than ever before, but I mean, it's also a season of time in which we're managing all our own insecurities, in which we're managing all our own uncertainties, all our own wounds, all our own issues, and trying to help each other, husband and wife, to do that, and then trying to help our kids to do that and manage school and all of these other things. And uh, what an interesting time to live in, to be a parent in, and to talk about revival in. It's fascinating to me that we had planned out to talk about revival during a season of time in which, in very limited capacities and only just now, would we actually even be able to come together. It is a time of humbling. It is a time in which God is shaking everything that we thought was solid. I think it's a perfect time to talk about revival, guys. I really do. I think it is a time in which the Lord is saying, I am going to orchestrate the world in such a way as to bring you to your knees. You will not, as Matt said, pray like this. You will not pray like this. You will pray because you will recognize your need for me. So today, as we continue this topic of revival, we come again to this question of what brings revival. Or really, I mean, the better question is, what always precedes revival? And we talked last week about the fact that repentance always precedes revival, but tonight we're going to also talk about prayer. So one of the things that you see as you study through revival, as you study through the Bible and its revivals, as you study through the history of revival and you read books like this one, is you see that what comes before it always is repentance and prayer. Look, we can't bring revival. We've been saying that all the way through this. Only God can do that. Only God can bring a special season of divine visitation in which God, the Holy Spirit himself, comes down and awakens his slumbering church. Only God can bend down from heaven. We can't bend him down forcibly from heaven, down to the dying embers of the flame in the heart of his people, and then breathe on them until they burst into flame again. Like, only God can do these things, but we can look for the things that always precede it, and in brokenness and in humility from hearts that are going, you know what, Lord, I I recognize now more than I have ever recognized maybe my need for you. We can start doing those kinds of things. Dr. A.T. Pearson summed it up well when he said this. He says, there has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locality that did not begin in united prayer. And he's right. Just study through the history of the Great Awakenings as just some examples. How did the first Great Awakening begin? Well, it began on Monday, January 1, 1739, when John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and 64 other people gathered together in London, England for a prayer meeting. And by the way, this wasn't like a one-off. It's not like they all went, hey, let's get together for a prayer meeting. And that was a new thing that they started doing that day. They did it all the time. They did it for years. It's just something changed at this meeting. John Wesley said that at about 3 a.m., Okay, 3 a.m., they're chasing hard after God. 
He said in his diary, the power of God came mightily upon us insomuch that many fell to the ground. As soon as we recovered, a little from the awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty, he says, we broke out with one voice, we praise thee, O Lord, O God, we acknowledge thee to be the Lord. It's amazing. You're like, that's all the prayer I'd need for like a whole week. But they just kept at it on Friday of that same week. They gathered again. The Wesleys, George Whitfield, and four other pastors in this instance to spend all day in prayer and fasting. Till about 3 p.m., when as George Whitfield then recorded in his diary, he said, we parted with the full conviction that God was going to do great things among us. And boy, did he. Like nation-changing things. Eternity-changing things. What about the Second Great Awakening? The Second Great Awakening really came on the tails of the American Revolution, which, by the way, was a season of time spiritually in this nation in which Christianity was all but dead. It's remarkable. John Marshall, who was the Chief Justice of the United States at that time, wrote to the Bishop of Virginia, and he said that in his opinion, Christianity was too far gone ever to be redeemed. Thomas Paine lived then, said Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years. And then revival came. Now, it came from Great Britain, but how did it originate there? In a movement of prayer called the Union of Prayer. It's remarkable. What about the Third Great Awakening? I've talked a little bit about that in the past. It's the only Great Awakening to originate here in the United States. It traces its roots back to a prayer meeting in New York City that was led by a New York City businessman, a Christian man, who with the cooperation of his church said, you know what I want to do? I want to start a businessman's prayer meeting from noon to one once a week. And I love the fact that it was not a pastor who led this. I say that to empower you guys. Please hear me say that the greatest leaders in this church are not on this stage. They're not. They're out here and they're out there. They're you guys. Don't wait for us to come up with the ideas. Take it. Lead it. God used this man to change the world. So he advertised all over New York City. There were a million people living in New York City at that time. Now there's like 8.3, so it's grown a bit. But it's still a big city. A million people, he puts out all of his advertisements, six people show up. The next week, 14 people show up. The next week, 23 people show up, and those 23 say, hey, we want to do this every day. Within six months, New York City was filled with prayer meetings. Thousands upon thousands of people. Spread to the south, spread to the north, spread to the west throughout the United States. The vehicle of the revival primarily was the prayer meeting. And then it went over to Europe. It crossed the Atlantic to Great Britain. It went to Great Britain, Australia, Korea, India, Scandinavia, Germany, Africa, Brazil, Mexico, and then it came back to the United States and Canada and visited us a second time. Dr. Pearson is right when he says that there has, and I think the next word is the key, there has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locality that did not begin in united prayer. And so the question that I want to ask today is this, what kind of prayer... Like, what kind of prayer brings revival or really always immediately precedes revival? Because here's what it isn't. And I don't say this to criticize your prayer life. If this is your prayer life, just know that I've prayed tens of thousands of these prayers. All I'm doing is trying to illustrate the difference between what we're praying or how we're doing it now and the kind of prayer that I'm talking about today. 
It's not, dear Lord, thank you for this day, thank you for this food, bring revival, amen. It's not it. It's what all of these people who dig into this topic call prevailing prayer. There is a different level of passion. There is a different level of commitment. There is a different level of determination. It's like a dog on a bone, man. You are not going to let go. And I think that's the kind of prayer that that God calls us to pray. It's the kind of prayer, as I'll show you as well, that Jesus calls us to pray. It's the kind of prayer that I think always precedes a move of God. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 62, beginning in verse 1, because it's the Lord speaking. It's not Isaiah. He's taking notes. God says this. He says, for Zion's sake, not for my sake, I, God, will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, again, not for my sake, I, God, will not be quiet. And you say, well, you know, good for Zion and Jerusalem, but that's not us. It actually is us. Now, I'll grant you, we are not the Zion and Jerusalem of Isaiah's day, but we are the Zion and Jerusalem of our day. And why do I say that? Because this is poetry. So what is Zion and Jerusalem? It's not a what so much as a who. It's God's people. God is coming to his people. And I dare say that he's as concerned for us today as he was back then. And really for the same reason. I think largely because we have the same condition, but maybe it manifests a little differently. So God looked at his people back in that day, and far from being a witness to the nations, they were literally captive and taken captive by the nations. Far from being a culture-transforming influence on the peoples of the earth, they had themselves been renovated and transformed by the peoples of this earth. And I don't think that's too far from us. I think it's something to think about. Now, I understand that as Americans, you know, we haven't been taken captive by any other nation, but I think to some degree we've been taken captive by our own nation or maybe by our passions for our nation. And my passions like yours right now are running high. But think about that for a minute. Think about some of the things that we promote. Think about some of the things that we say. Think about some of the things that we post on social media, and just back off of the passion for a second, just back off of the whole, and just ask yourself, what is it accomplishing? What is the positive effect that any of this is actually happening? What is it bringing that's good? I'm going to tell you some of the negatives. I think that one of the negatives is that all it does is it confirms and hardens people in opinions they already have. Doesn't it? Like, I mean, when was the last time you read an article or some kind of a post from somebody that you vehemently disagree with politically and you went, wow, you know what, that's a great idea, and you changed your entire position? As you're reading the article, you're constructing the reasons why it's stupid. Aren't you? You're forming in your mind what you're going to say in response because that's going to persuade them. It just hardens us in opinions that we already have. And here's what else it does. And this is the truly tragic part. It divides us. It divides us from people outside the church that we have been commissioned by God to reach with the gospel and to whom we give the impression that you can't be a Christian unless you agree with this stuff over here. And it divides us from each other. It divides Christian from Christian outside of this church, and it divides Christian from Christian inside of this church. And I'm not speaking in hypotheticals. I've actually had people say to me, 
There are people because of this, and by the way, these people said, I don't do this and I don't think anybody else should, but there are people that because of this, I have unfriended and I don't get the impression they just mean on Facebook. It's not helpful. Captives. What can captives do? And then beyond that, I think that we need to examine ourselves and say, all right, have we influenced the culture more than the culture has influenced us? Because I think in the last hundred years of the church history, the answer to that is largely no. I think when we look at our sexual ethic, it's pretty much the same. I think when we look at the divorce rate, it's pretty much the same. I think when we look at what we entertain ourselves with, what we comfort ourselves with, what we reward ourselves with, what we call profane and not, it's pretty much the same. I think when we look at what it is that we build our identity upon and what makes us valuable and worthy as human beings in reality as opposed to just what we say, it's pretty much the same. There is a reason why revival comes on the heels of repentance. It's because we look at all this stuff and it isn't working. And God calls us to humble ourselves and walk away from it. Peter comes to us and says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you for those who ask. They ask when we're not the same. God looks at his people and he says, all right, so here's the deal. They cannot rescue themselves from this. And so for the sake of my people, I will not be silent. And for the sake of my people, he says, I will not be quiet until what? Because here's revival. Look at the picture. He says, until her righteousness, that is to say the righteousness of my people, that in this moment, as I'm saying this God, is completely absent, goes forth as brightness in the dark. That's the idea. And her salvation, which in her captivity was entirely absent, as a burning torch. And now notice what happens outside of the church when revival, like real revival, happens inside of the church. God says, well, then the nation shall see your righteousness, but it will be different from theirs. And all the kings shall see your glory because it will be different from theirs. And you, my people, shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord himself will give to you. And in the ancient Near East, a change in name reflected a change in nature. It reflected a change in character. He says, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall be no more termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called. And here's the new name and it's beautiful. The new name is my delight is in her. And your land shall be called married because you won't be divorced from it anymore by captivity. And here's why God says, I'm going to do all this. And I want you to take this into your heart. He says, for the Lord delights in you. And think about when he says that to these people. He doesn't say, listen, here's the deal. If you fix this, if you do that, if you get your righteousness to shine like the brightness, you know, and if you can, you know, do you, if you can do that other thing and the salvation and the burning torch and the thing, and then that will be, and then I'm going to delight in you. He comes to us in our brokenness and says, no, 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 here's the deal. I, God, have chosen you to be the object of my delight. When you're messy and when you're not. 
when you're a wreck and when you're together. I delight in you. What glory. He says, for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. It will be generational. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, he says, so shall your God rejoice over you. What a beautiful picture of person transforming, of church transforming, of city transforming, of nation transforming, of world transforming revival. But again, what does it take for that to happen? Well, it takes repentance and it takes prayer. And the question is, what kind of prayer And God will now answer that question, beginning in verse 6. He says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I, God, have set watchmen. And the job of a watchman was not just to watch for the approach of enemy armies, okay? Once the enemy armies came and besieged the city, the job of the watchman was to look over their heads for help. Who's coming to save us? Where is the deliverance coming from? When is it going to arrive? On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. And notice what they're doing. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. They're praying. And then God speaks to the watchman and he instructs us. He says, you who put the Lord in remembrance. And you say, all right, well, put the Lord in remembrance of what? Of his promises. In this case, of his promise to make their righteousness shine as brightness. To make their salvation like a burning torch. He's like you who put the the Lord in remembrance all day and all night. All right, here's the deal. Take no rest from your praying. And give him, that is to say, give God, what? No rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. What kind of prayer brings or always precedes revival? Prayer that won't give up. Prayer that just keeps coming. It's exactly what God is encouraging. It's exactly what Jesus encourages. In Luke 18, Luke says that Jesus told them a parable, but to what end? Like, what's the point of the story? He says, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Don't give up. So what's the story? Jesus said that in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, which means that this judge is completely disconnected from accountability. Like he's not, you know, operating as a judge and thinking, ah, you know, I might have to answer to God for this. No, no, there's no thought of that at all. And he's not worried about what anybody else in this life thinks either, judicial inquiries, and he's not, whatever. He has no motivation to serve anybody but himself is the idea. And our Lord says, and there was a widow in that city also. In the days of Jesus, widows had no power, they had no money, they had no status, they had no influence, they had nothing. Their husband died, and they immediately became, not kidding, the personal property of their husband's family. Why? Because the husband's family had purchased them from their family, and they didn't get their money's worth because their son died too quickly. And so now you become the property of your husband's family. They could sell you. She has nothing to offer this judge who has no reason to serve anyone but himself. And yet she just kept coming to the unjust judge day after day, week after week, month after month, saying, give me justice against my adversary. And what do you want to do with this lady? Because it's what Jesus wants you to do with this lady. You, you, just kind, of, you kind of want to take her in. You, know? you want to give her a hug. And you want to say, listen, I love you, but you're wasting your time. 
Like, I mean, at some point, you're beating yourself up with your own fists. Like, why are you going back to this guy? Like, you know, listen, give it up. This is a waste of time. Why do you keep summoning the hope that someday maybe this guy who's never going to come through for you is going to come through for you? Cut it out. But she doesn't give up. And look what happens. Jesus says that for a while, this unjust judge refused to give this widow what what she wanted. And by the way, every time he refused, it looked less likely like he would ever actually give it to her. One of her friends would show up that night, you know, bring her dinner, hug her, say, love you, give up. This is a waste of time. But it's not. For a while, this unjust judge refused. But afterward, meaning after some time, He said to himself, and this guy is so self-aware, it's remarkable. He says, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord, meaning the Lord Jesus, then stops his story and he points at that judge. And he says, did you guys hear what the unrighteous judge just said? Because like if you missed it, He gave her what she wanted. He answered her prayer. And then he compares the unjust judge to the perfectly just judge in heaven. And he says, and will not God give justice to his elect, to the people he delights in? He has chosen as his treasured possession. And will will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him, what? Because it's the same language as Isaiah. Day and night. Will he delay long over them? And you say, well, wait a minute. So is Jesus saying that God is like the unjust judge? And the answer to that is yes and no. It's actually both. God is very much like the unjust judge in that he holds all the cards. That our fate, if you will, is entirely within his hands. Like there isn't a fact or a circumstance in any one of our lives that is outside of his control and that he does not actively control, which is a little terrifying sometimes, isn't it? Our hope alone is in him and in his granting of our requests. But he's very much unlike the unjust judge in that he's not unjust. And also that he's not unaccountable. He is held accountable to his own character, to his own nature, to his own perfections, and to his own word, and for that matter, to his own promises. He keeps his promises. It's a fascinating thing to read through the prayers of the Bible. What you're going to discover, read through the prayers of Moses as an example. What does Moses do? Because it's not unique to him. He takes up the word of God, the promises of God, and then he comes to God and he pleads the promises. He says, hey, you promised this. This is what I want. Do this. You said you'd do it. What is God saying? You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. Jesus says, do you hear what the unjust judge said? What about your father in heaven? So as I've been reading about revival, I just, it's been fun. I've really enjoyed it, actually. I've read several books at this point. This is the one I've been recommending. It has a super cheesy cover, I'm not going to lie. So they need a new graphic artist. But but the book itself is really good. It's called Revival Fire. 
And when you read about the Hebrides revival, which is a fun one to read about, there's a story in it that just kind of reminded me of of what we're talking about here. And the Hebrides are an archipelago, so it's a series of islands. The largest island, I think, is called the Isle of Lewis. And so on the Isle of Lewis, this man, Duncan Campbell, who was the revivalist, the pastor who came, that God mostly worked through, but he worked through a lot of other people too. Um, This man, Duncan Campbell, came, and the revival broke out like a fire, no kidding, and it spread throughout the Isle of Lewis. But there was a village in the Isle of Lewis that it didn't touch, the village of Arnall. And so Duncan Campbell went to the village. And the Christians in the village were like, why not us? They wanted it bad. It says Campbell went to the village of Arnall, but many of the people there remained aloof. They weren't interested. And so what did he do? He called for a night of prayer in the home of an elder. Around midnight, Campbell turned to a blacksmith from the town, and he said, John, I, I feel like the time has come for you to pray. With his cap in hand, John rose to pray, and in the middle of the prayer, he paused. And he raised his right hand to heaven, and he said, Oh God, you made a promise to pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And Lord, it's not happening. It's Isaiah 44, verse 3. He paused again and then continued, Lord, if I know anything about my own heart, I stand before thee as an empty vessel thirsting for thee and for a manifestation of thy power. It says he halted again and after a moment of tense silence, he cried, oh God, your honor is at stake. And I now challenge you to fulfill your covenant engagement and do what you have promised to do. Okay, that's intense. That's like Moses. The people there reported that at that very moment, the house shook, the dishes rattled in the sideboard, and wave after wave of God's power swept through the building. Some thought there had been an earthquake, but Duncan Campbell remembered Acts 4, 31, where the same thing happened, just to the apostles. It says, when Campbell pronounced the benediction and they went outside that night, the people felt as if the whole community was alive with an awareness of God. A stream of blessing was released which brought salvation to many homes during the succeeding nights. So what brings revival? Okay, what precedes it? What precedes it is a people who desperately want it and recognize their need for it and repent before the Lord of all the things that they are trusting in, of all the things that they've been pursuing all the things, relationally speaking, that stand between him and them, his presence. And then it's prayer, guys. Not, you know, thank you for the food. And I mean, look, I'll take it. That's, if that's as good as it gets, that's better than not. But it's day and night stuff. It's unrelenting, unremitting. It's the Holy Spirit has put a fire in me and a desire to pray to the Lord in prevailing prayer, prayer that prevails in the end, the idea is, with God. He does it how he wants to do it. He does it when he wants to do it. Sometimes it's a week. Sometimes it's 13 years, as it was for Evan Roberts, who started praying for revival at age 13, by the way. It came when he was 26. Sometimes it's 100 years, as you heard with the Moravians in the video that we did today. 
but it's prayer that does not give up and that claims his promises and says, Lord, this is what I want to say. I don't know if you've caught this, but the theme verse for this whole study and our benediction every day has been Second Chronicles 7.14. God says this, he says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, prayer and repentance, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Dr. Pearson is right. There has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locality that did not begin in united, and I'm going to add, in prevailing prayer. And so my question for you, and really kind of my challenge, is will you become one of the watchmen on the wall for this church and for the church in this city? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you, Lord, for all of the ways that you have moved in history. God, we read of you in your word. We read of you in the pages of church history. We hear the stories, Lord, of of you doing amazing and miraculous things, of your presence coming down from heaven upon your people in ways that even people who don't believe in you cannot deny. Give us faith for that. Give us a hunger for that. Let us place a value on that higher than our value on anything else. Let us say we have not lived if we have not lived through something like that. My goodness, place within us, Lord, a desire for that that lays it all down and then day and night looks for you on the horizon praying that you would come. Make our righteousness shine as brightness. Make our salvation like a burning torch in this otherwise very dark world that you might receive the glory. God, let us know your presence in revival personally, as families, as a church, and as your church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.